Hello and welcome into All In with Adam, episode 16. I've got a handful of things that I want to talk about today, so this is going to be somewhat of an unorthodox episode. You know, when I try to think of the topics for this episode, sometimes I get I get overwhelmed, especially when the topic is so big or so complex that I fully understand that I can't cover all of my thoughts or all of the things that anyone would need to know um, in the span of an hour or two hours or three hours even. And so I have this feeling of, I guess it's inadequacy when it comes to certain topics. Like, how could I be the guy to possibly cover uh, this entire entire topic or, or address this entire domain of thought? Uh, one, I'm not old enough to do it. I don't claim expertise in a lot of the things that I talk about on this podcast. And and I think that's a, that's a healthy exercise for me to, to push my thoughts and my boundaries as far as I can currently. And then sort of walk away and say, that's okay, I don't need to be the expert, I don't need to be the guy to, um, you know, to, to close the show necessarily on all of these topics. So the four topics that I have today, uh, and I'll lay out for you what, what they are, they are topics that I feel particularly inadequate to discuss at length. I don't know that I can expand any of these topics um, too far before I have to hand you off to another intellectual, someone who's a lot older and wiser than me, and go, well, if you want to learn more, maybe listen to this guy talk about this particular thing. Uh, but I do think I have some interesting thoughts on these these four particular topics today, so I'm going to keep it relatively brief because, again, I don't know that I'm the guy to expand on some of these things for hours and hours and hours, but that could be... Um, I don't know, like a lack of ego or, or some part of me screaming at myself, like, not you, not you, asshole. But, so we're going to start out nice and light, uh, and then we're going to get heavier as we go, and we'll see how far we get into this podcast. So uh, I've got kind of a cool motorcycle for you, that w- motorcycle story for you that we're going to open up with. Um, I rode bikes for a very, very long time, and, and there's some um, just some interesting thoughts I have about that entire world and about what it is to ride a motorcycle. So that's the light part. We're going to start out there. The next thing we're going to go on to is a steroid cycle that I'm just now completing, uh, anabolic steroids, uh, specifically testosterone enanthate, which is an entire class or a category of drug that I've wanted to explore for a very long time, and I finally have, but I'm reaching the end of this steroid cycle, so I thought this would be a good time to sort of uh, give you my, my thoughts on this experience and sort of what I'm facing in the coming months ahead as I recover um, from putting my body through whatever it is I just did to it. So uh, and then we're going to try to tackle briefly a precision of language. This is a topic I've wanted to do a full podcast episode on for quite a while. But it's a very intimidating one, and I also think it's one that I would like to do with another person. So this week, a really, really close friend of mine, Devin Sumner, who some of you may know from the drum industry, uh, D-Sum Drums, he's actually in Orlando. He normally lives in California, but he's in Orlando visiting, so I hope to have him on the podcast next week, and him and I can definitely take uh, precision of language a little bit further. He's... Um, he's a language nerd, much like myself. Drums will do that to you after a while. So we're going to do a little bit of precision of language today. And then I'm going to close out with a, a fascinating metaphorical explanation for the concept of Jesus. Jesus is ultimately, he's the ticket to heaven. If there is a heaven and we're allowed to go there, allegedly you got to have this dude living inside you to make that happen. But I've got a metaphor that I think is a powerful one for, um, what the concept of God the Father and Jesus the Son represents to me and how I've wrapped my mind around that um, philosophical conception of a father and a son. We got a lot to talk about there, but remember all of this is coming from a, from a non-Christian, so hopefully it'll be an interesting perspective. I've been able to test out this 
philosophical argument on one Christian, and it was a very interesting conversation, so I'll share with you uh, a little bit about that. So let's circle all the way back. We're starting off with motorcycles. Relax. I'm not taking you down a wormhole just yet. Well, it's a mo- motorcycle wormhole, but, but that's not, it's not too crazy. So I want to give you a little bit of my history with, with motorcycles. Uh, I got my very first bike um, because I had a job a little over 10, 12 years ago at a company called eBiz Autos, and it was an automotive photography company. And part of that job um, included a, a smart car. So I got a, a smart car. Fun fact, the first smart car that I got for that job was loaded. I mean, it had everything, six-disc CD changer, had power everything. It was, a, it was a loaded smart car. It was worth like 30 grand. And I totaled it on the first day of the job. And it wasn't my fault that I totaled it. It was actually part of a seven or a 10-car pileup on I-4. I was driving from Tampa to Orlando, and there was a U2 concert, which is what caused all the crazy traffic. There was a huge pileup, and I was kind of in the middle of it, so I got hit. Um, I I rear-ended someone, and I got hit in the back, and three cars in front of me, and three cars behind me all also wrecked. So it wasn't my fault. At least that's what the police report said. Um, So I was able to keep my job. And then they... (laughs) The new, the new smart car that they got me was like completely bare bone stock, like roll up windows. It had no radio. It was basically like a golf cart with air conditioning. So and I had that job for two years. So that was a fucking downgrade. That sucked. But, um, you know, when I had that car, the gas was paid for, the insurance was paid for, and I got to take that car home with me for two years. And I made decent money at that job, at least in my mind, it was decent money at the time. So I decided to go get a motorcycle, and I got a, a mid-80s Honda Cafe Cruiser. It was, it was called a Nighthawk is what it was. Um, and it was red, white, and blue. So it was like an Uncle Sam edition of a Honda 750 Nighthawk from the 80s. That was a cool-ass bike, man. It was really cool. But when things went wrong with that motorcycle... It was really hard to fix, right? I mean, good luck getting like a throttle cable or not a throttle cable. That was one thing that definitely broke. But any part from a bike that old, you know, I just wasn't that mechanically inclined. So it was a problematic bike to have because shit broke and I really didn't know how to fix it or I couldn't find the part. So I had that bike for a couple years. It was a lot of fun, but it was never my main vehicle. And then I finally sold that and I bought a brand new off the lot Honda Shadow Phantom 750. Um, it was a liquid cooled V twin, still 750. So, you know, not, not a huge bike, but, uh, good enough to get around town. And man, I rode that bike into the fucking ground over the next five years because within a few months of buying that motorcycle, I actually got laid off at Ibiz autos because people realized they can take their own automotive photography. <laughs> it's not that hard to, you know, as iPhones and shit got better, people would just buy, or rather they would just take their own photos of the cars and they didn't need to hire a company to do this. So I just got laid off and uh, I was stuck with this brand new motorcycle and no car. So I decided to keep the bike, but now I had only a motorcycle and that was not what I signed up for, but I found myself giving private drum lessons full time within a year or two of that. So for a solid five year stretch, all I did was give private drum lessons around Orlando full time on a motorcycle. And the problems that (laughs) that come with that are, that's a long list of problems, man. I remember getting, getting... the underside of my neck, like under my chin and my neck, horribly sunburned from the reflection of the tank, like riding around in 100 degree weather in July in Orlando, just getting like melted under the sun. I remember leaving for days of lessons when it's just torrentially raining outside. 
and I'm leaving the house at 10 a.m. and I've got five t-shirts, three pairs of jeans, two towels, and three ponchos, like all stuffed in a backpack, leaving for an eight-hour day of lessons because I know full well I'm going to get fucking drenched like three or four times and I can't show up at these people's houses to teach their kids like sopping wet, you know. Oh, it was, uh, I look back fondly on that now, but man, there was a, there was a, (laughs) there was a fixture of misery (laughs) that was just built into that job. Um, if I had a car, it wouldn't have been like that, but man, so I ended up putting a little under 40,000 miles on that bike. I sold that bike for a thousand bucks five years after I bought it for like $12,000. Uh, I sold it for $1,000 because I had put 37,000 miles on it, and it was just beat to shit. I I drank back when I had that bike, so it had been dropped a number of times, missing mirrors, scratched up exhaust. It was just such a beat-up motorcycle, but it never gave me any problems. It was a fantastic bike, so I'm I'm still a huge Honda fan uh, for that reason. But, you know, I just lived on a motorcycle for a long time. It's a big part of my identity uh, in my early 20s. So I've always had a fondness for motorcycles, and I think I've put uh, a disproportionate amount of hours in on a motorcycle. I think a lot of people can ride for 20 years and they don't put 40,000 miles on a bike. If you've ever shopped for used motorcycles, um, you'll find that tons of them have two, three, four, five, six thousand miles on them because people are weekend riders, right? It's like a, a luxury toy. Not for me. I had like a job where I had to travel all the time and only a motorcycle. So I put in a lot of time on bikes um, and they just, they mean a lot to me. It's a culture and a world that, that I really enjoy. But when I sold that bike, it was because I had a car and I finally could afford a car. And I was very excited um, to finally have a car. And I found myself not riding that much. The bike just sat in the sun and the rain. I didn't have a garage for it. And I just said, you know what, let me take a break from motorcycles for a little while. And I never bought another one. Well, uh, long story short, you know, flash forward however many years later here in 2021, uh, my father-in-law, which is Kelly's dad, my wife's dad, he is selling um, his house and he's selling a, a number of other things that he has too, but he's had this um, one particular bike for a while. It's a sport bike, which I never rode sport bikes. I always rode choppers, cruisers, um, bobbers were, were normally my, my preferred style of motorcycle, but This bike is a Kawasaki ZX-14R. And if you're not in motorcycle world, don't worry, I'm not going that nerdy with you here, but that particular bike I had seen a number of times at his house, but because I'm not into sport bikes, I didn't really know much about it. I just knew it was like a fast crotch rocket kind of style motorcycle. So Kelly's dad, my father-in-law, asked if I would sell this bike for him because there's a bigger market uh, up here in Orlando for motorcycles than where he lives. So the plan was for me to just get the bike, bring it up here, and sell it. And um, that, that's what we're doing right now. The bike is here at my house. But when I went to go get this motorcycle, you know, I wanted to learn a little bit about it before I picked it up, especially because I'm going to be the one selling it. So I, I wanted to kind of know my shit when it came to that bike. And I did not realize that when it came out in 2017, it was the fastest street-legal motorcycle in the world. And even as of now, three, four years later, it's the second fastest motorcycle in the world. And I say that meaning like stock street-legal bike that you can just go buy. Certainly, you can get a Hayabusa or something and modify it to compete with a bike like this. Uh, But stock... Off of the fucking parking lot, this bike has a 2.6 second zero to 60, and it's got around a nine second quarter mile. So think like Ferrari, Lamborghini, like it competes with the fastest cars in the world. And by all means, it's it's a bike that can hang on, on a fucking drag strip. Like it's an absolutely ungodly fast motorcycle. It's insane. So I went to go pick this thing up. 
uh, down in Merritt Island where he lives, about 90 minutes from, from my house. And I got to take it all the way back here for my very first ride on this thing, which is, you know, it's 80% on the highway. And I, I opened it up a couple times uh, before we got to the highway just to sort of feel what it could do, knowing full well that it's not the kind of bike you can just really open up. It flips over. Like, you'll just fly off the back. The wheel comes off the ground very easy. Even though it's a massive, heavy bike, it's just a, a, an absurd amount of power. And so I'm at this one particular toll plaza, and I see I've got like a solid quarter mile or maybe even a half mile stretch in front of me before I have to merge back onto the highway. So in my head, I'm like paying this toll. I'm like, all right, fuck it. Let's let's just open this thing up all the way. Like I'm gonna scare myself here, but let's really see what we can do. So <laughs> first thing, I didn't realize that you can get to like 80 miles an hour in first gear. Like it just it just screams up to like 13k RPM. Like it, it's just an absolute monster of a machine. So I opened this bike up, but I'll tell you what got me. By the time I got up to speed, I, you know, I, I think I pulled off the throttle around like 140. You know, very very scary to get up that quick, you feel your cheeks start pulling off and shit. But what was so fascinating was I found myself crying. And crying not because of the wind in my eyes, not nothing physical, I was emotionally crying. Because I, I had completely forgotten the feeling that this trio drug cocktail of adrenaline, dopamine, and cortisol all surging at the same time, I had forgotten what that feels like. And to be honest, my, my favorite way to describe it is something along the lines of like, like a rage orgasm. It's something like that. It, it like whatever the essence of the center of a mosh pit is, that's what it feels like. It's like chaos and terror and power and pleasure all at the same time. It's a very unique mix, kind of synonymous with the feeling you might get uh, on a roller coaster, like there's this moment of existential dread that just fucking consumes you for a second, but you somehow like it. It's the same reason people go to see horror movies, right? It's like the feelings that we chase sometimes that are produced internally. Like it's not like I put some exogenous chemical into my body to make myself feel that way. The experience that that machine gave me was very much like being on a drug. I was on a drug, just happens to be drugs that my own you know, neurochemistry produces. But man, I found myself crying because I was so overwhelmed with the feeling that that gave me. It was powerful. It made me wanna scream and cry and laugh all at the same time. It was unbelievably powerful. And so it was interesting to be reacquainted with this concept that people buy motorcycles far beyond reasons that would include transportation, right? Like you can, I would say nine out of 10 people that ride bikes be like transportation, like that's part of it, but that's not necessarily the reason people even enter into this world. And I had forgotten that, I had forgotten that. So it was cool to get a, a refreshed understanding of what it is that attracts people to motorcycles. You're buying a feeling. In the case of this bike, it's a $10,000 feeling. That's an expensive feeling, but shit, man, it was really, really cool. So it's got me thinking that maybe I would like to get another motorcycle, but now I'm wrestling with this concept of like, how much money do you spend on what is effectively a toy? How much money do, do you spend on purchasing a feeling? It's a lot of cool shit that we all buy to make us feel a certain way. Um, but it's not often that we explore those boundaries and those limitations, like where precisely do you draw the line and go, this is too much money for pleasure, for leisure, for enjoyment, for a feeling. So 
yeah, I'm wrestling with that one now. I'd really like to get, um, if you want to see a cool-ass motorcycle, I would really like to get an Indian Scout Bobber. Uh, beautiful bike. It's like between 10 and 15 grand, depending what you get on it. But it's a really hard, hard purchase for me to make. Um, you know, I own all of my vehicles outright. Um, so I, I never really finance a vehicle. I could technically go finance it no problem, but it's like, dude, you can do so many cool things with $10,000. I really just, I'm having a hard time justifying a purchase like that for sure. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm trying to be very patient, very, very adult about it, uh, and just be responsible and think through the purchase, but we'll fucking see. It's got me, got me back in motorcycle mode for sure. Uh, watching a lot of YouTube motorcycle shit. So anyway, that's all I got for bikes. But I just thought that was an interesting, an interesting experience, man, to be reacquainted uh, with that drug cocktail that is going really, really, really fucking fast on an insane motorcycle. So the bike is not yet sold. So I'm grateful to have that here for the next week or two weeks, however long it takes to get the bike sold. But um, yeah, man, a beautiful machine, cool experience. And that's all I got on motorcycles. Now let's talk steroids. So yes, we're talking about anabolic steroids, the same ones that a bodybuilder would take to get very, very muscular. But I think this world is oftentimes misinterpreted. And I really hope that this podcast does not attract the steroid community of people because I I'm imagining that anyone listening to this podcast is not particularly familiar with this class of drug. So I'm going to sort of hit this from a very wide outsider's perspective instead of getting real real nerdy and bro sciencey on you. If you want to learn more about anabolic steroids from a medical or a scientific perspective, uh, there's a lot of YouTube channels that actually talk openly about this topic. Uh, but for me, you know, I just want to offer today sort of um, like an overview of what this is and why I would actually do it. Because clearly, I am not a professional bodybuilder. I'm not in the fitness industry. Um, my entire relationship to fitness and nutrition, what I've always loved about fitness and nutrition is that for me, it's something I'm able to, to moderate very well. And I have a very extreme personality. When I say extreme, I mean black and white. I'm either hyper-passionate, obsessed with something, and it's the only thing I can think about, or I don't give a shit at all. Those are kind of my only two, two modes that I seem to have. And this is really pretty common uh, for, it's pretty common for people with alcoholism uh, or addiction problems or histories with, with drug abuse. That's a pretty common, common fixture that you'll find as well, sort of that extreme black and white personality. Everything is all or nothing. But when it comes to fitness, I've never become obsessed with fitness. I never really cared if I was the biggest guy in the room. I just wanted to be in shape. Same with diet. I never felt a need to take it to any extreme, though ironically, I'm on like one of the most extreme <laughs> diets in the world, carnivore diet. Um, but but regardless, it's never consumed my my thoughts. I should say it that way. It's never been something that's, that's totally consumed me. I'm always able to moderate um, my diet and my relationship to fitness pretty well. So that's why I've liked fitness and nutrition. It's one of the few things that I have that sort of is in this, this weird middle ground that I'm not too good at navigating most of the time. So I did not start taking testosterone or start this steroid cycle in order to get like fucking huge and take over the world. Like I really didn't care about the physical changes too much, but I did have a, uh, when I had my wedding coming up, um, in early April, I began this cycle. So I had about a month, maybe five weeks uh, from when I began the steroid cycle 
until the actual wedding happened. And yes, I did wanna like fill out my suit and look good for the photos, but um, there were also some, some other benefits that I've always wanted to explore when it comes to anabolic steroids because there are so many things that testosterone does that are not, not necessarily related to muscle building. Now, yes, being on exogenous testosterone, being on a steroid cycle, it creates a platform within your entire physiology that allows you to gain muscle very quickly. For sure, that, that definitely happens. But there's a ton of other benefits. And as I've become aware of these other benefits of having elevated testosterone um, over the last several years, and especially with carnivore diet, which raises your testosterone, I became really interested for a lot of reasons in starting a steroid cycle. So uh, in early April, I began injecting testosterone in Nanthate, 300 milligrams per week, which is considered a very a very moderate um, steroid cycle. There are definitely people who go up to a gram of testosterone enanthate a week, for example. That'd be a, that'd be a thousand milligrams. Um, so I was doing three hundred milligrams. Now, for reference, on the high end of the spectrum, your your body can produce anywhere from like 70 to 100 milligrams a week naturally. So my testosterone even now uh, is elevated three times what it would be, you know, naturally. Now, I also wanna say that one of the reasons I was interested in, in taking a steroid cycle now is because I'm 31 years old. So, you know, taking steroids, any type of, of exogenous testosterone, you know, in your 20s, not necessarily the best idea because your testosterone is naturally going to be at its highest level of production for your entire life. But around the 30 mark, things begin to dip. And I've never felt like I had low testosterone. I never felt like my testosterone was dipping at any point. My sex drive is not that much different than it was 10 years ago. Uh, my ability to gain muscle or gain weight about the same as it was 10 years ago. Carnivore has solved any fatigue or, you know, issues of like um, like energy. All of that seems to be very manageable with a carnivore diet. So I never felt like my testosterone dipped necessarily, but it's not going up. It's not going up from age, you know, 31. There's no way I'm gonna get it too much higher. So whatever my testosterone is naturally, it's about as high as it's ever gonna be, and it's only downhill from here. So that's sort of why I was glad to have waited until I was over 30 to experiment um, with, with hormone drugs, really. So let me tell you a little bit about how testosterone makes you feel, how it feels to be on a steroid cycle. Within the first four or five days, I could feel some of the cognitive benefits. I definitely noticed um, temper got a, a touch shorter. Your And I explained this in the carnivore episode a bit as well. Your bullshit meter goes off real quick. You're, you're not as patient, that's for sure. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're angry or that you will you know, have some sort of uh, outburst of rage. If you have a propensity to behave that way, it might might encourage you to do that a little bit more. But I don't particularly ha have a temper or necessarily like an anger problem. So for me, that was that was not really an issue. Keep in mind, I'm also on a relatively moderate dose at 300 milligrams per week, which is is a, a pretty safe amount to do. But the cognitive benefits include things like increased motivation. It's almost like the reward system that you have for for goals, for accomplishing anything, like that reward system is an overdrive. So effort feels good. It feels good to try. And, and that applies to anything. I'm not just talking about workouts. Certainly, you can see that in the gym. Um, you know, your workout intensity certainly improves. Uh, so the, the quality of your workout gets a lot better. Your focus gets a lot better. But it's not just in the gym. It's not just weightlifting. It's also 
It's in everything. Doing projects in the backyard, projects around the house, um, waking up and designing a day, like your motivation to get things done is very, very high. So the, the productivity element of having increased tes testosterone was powerful. It is very, very powerful. Um, really, really cool to experience that. So there's definitely this behavioral benefit that adds to the the addictive nature of the experience. I used to think that the only reason people would become addicted to steroids was because they they ultimately became addicted to their own the improvement of their own physique, right? That the potential for abuse was very high if you have someone who is passionate about uh, watching their physique change and transform. If it's tied into their livelihood because they're in the fitness industry or they're a professional competitive IFBB pro, like a bodybuilder, well, I, I certainly understand why you know, hacking the system by putting an exogenous substance into your body that creates this platform on which you can become very muscular very quickly. You know, I understand why you would keep doing that to the point where you, you became addicted to it psychologically or otherwise. But for me, it was never, that was never something I was worried about. I was never worried about, you know, falling in love with the way that I look so much that I have to keep injecting testosterone. But I did not realize that the cognitive benefits are, are a huge part of that, that addictive recipe, that's for sure. Um, the, the benefits that you get from, from being on it exceed or, or span far, far further um, than just your physique. That's really, it's really a big part of why I, why I now understand why these are illegal. They, um, they definitely can grab a hold of you, man, for sure. So... It's been interesting to see how productive one can be um, when your testosterone is three times what it would be naturally. I have gotten so much shit done. It's awesome. Um, other small things, I guess, that these would kind of be built into the experience for almost everybody, pretty universal. Um, sex drive does go up, that's for sure. I would say I had a couple of skin breakouts, you know, a little bit of mild acne that, that's kind of uncommon for me, but... It was acne in itself is not uncommon for me, uh, but like a little worse than normal. And I noticed, though, it was whenever I would change or adjust the dose. So it was more like hormone changes are what causes my skin to break out, not necessarily just having elevated testosterone. And I should mention that about six weeks in, I bumped up to like 400 milligrams to 450 milligrams per week, um, which is a little closer to where you might find like a bodybuilder cycle. 500 milligrams per week is a little more common in that world, but I did 300 milligrams uh, for about the first half of the cycle and 400 to 450 for the second half of the cycle. And all of the benefits sort of bumped up with that bump up in dosage for sure. I'm even more productive. Um, I crave even more like, order in my life like you want things to be how they ought to be and you just get a lot of shit done so it's it's what's so interesting about this is it's changed my perspective on the degree to which we operate in obedience to our hormone levels and this is not something that I wake up and think about every day but when I think about an incredibly, let's just say a lazy person, a person who can't pull the trigger, they're not getting anything done, um, they, have, they have trouble accomplishing goals, That they, they let tasks go by throughout the day, and they're tired all the time. 
you know, yeah, you can look at environmental factors and say, well, you're not eating too, you know, you're not eating right. You're not in the habit of exercising. Maybe your sleep quality isn't as good as it should be. But also if I now knew that this person had low testosterone, my level of empathy has changed because I can't imagine what it would be like to wake up and construct a productive day in the absence of this hormone. And conversely, if you know someone who is just like a go-getter, like an absolute fucking savage, they they seize the day all the time, right? Uh, they get everything done. They meet all of their goals. They, they're, they're, they have a high degree of order in their life. Now, I have two thoughts. One, they might be on fucking steroids, that's for sure. And two, they may just have naturally high testosterone levels. And I'm not, I'm not kidding. Like, I believe wars between countries could be won, depending on which population of people had the higher natural testosterone production. Like, it is that that powerful um, a, a, of a drug. It's, it's incredible, man. It's really incredible. So it has definitely changed my perspective on how I see people and their behaviors, um, even their, their personalities, and how much they are operating in obedience to whatever their hormone levels might be. So if you're watching this and you're not particularly interested in taking a steroid cycle, don't worry. I'm not telling you that you should. But I will say that that the value of keeping your testosterone levels as high as they could be naturally, man, that's really, really, really fucking important. So as I come off of this cycle and I begin to kickstart my system again and, and resume my natural testosterone production, I'm certainly going to do everything I can to not only help those levels recover to normal, but to get them as high as possible naturally. Um, because again, I just have this heightened level of awareness now of how much they influence our behavior. It's really, truly an incredible thing to learn. Now, on the physical side, the, the actual benefits that I had, um, I've gained about 25 pounds in the last three months. I started this cycle um, deep into the carnivore diet, which the carnivore diet keeps me at about 150 to 155 pounds. Now, I'm 5'10", so that is definitely on the lean side. And it's really, it's so lean that I'm not necessarily comfortable there. I feel a little bit scrawny, a little bit squirrely at 150 pounds. You know, it's just there's only so much weight you're going to keep on your body when you don't eat any carbohydrates or sugar. Like being totally glucose-free, dude, you just don't keep any water in your muscles. Your water retention on carnivore, even keto, is very, very low. It's one of the reasons that you look and feel very lean and very tight all of the time. But... I found that uh, that on this steroid cycle, water retention changed a lot. I could hold water in my muscles. It looks like I'm like I'm like carb loaded sometimes, um, which is really cool because I have not left the carnivore diet. So I put on 25 pounds without eating any carbs or sugar. So right now I'm weighing in around 176, somewhere in there. Uh, I've weighed in as high as like 178, almost at that 180 mark. But I do think that I'm reaching my genetic limit when it comes to the amount of mass that my body can carry without carbs and sugar. But I would be very curious if I added back in carbs and sugar, got off the carnivore diet, and ran another cycle. I think I could crack the 200-pound mark for sure because putting on weight with this diet is very, or rather, with a steroid cycle, it's very easy. It's like fucking effortless. You just get big. It's crazy. Uh, I noticed strength increases within... Two to three weeks, I was able to tell that my all of my lifts were going up. Um, I would say all of my lifts went up between 10 and 20%, depending on what the actual lift was. Um, it, it's, it's incredible, man. It really is like, like pretty amazing for gaining muscle. Now, 
All that to say, I'm only running a three-month cycle because I want to be safe. You know, I don't want my my natural testosterone production to shut down forever. I'm not interested in going on TRT, testosterone replacement therapy. Um, I'm not interested in doing that. I'm too young to do that. My body still makes testosterone. Um, Kelly and I would like to have a kid. So there's really no reason for me to compromise any of these things that actually still work in my body. So this is a cycle for that reason. And I'm now coming off. I actually took my last injection yesterday. And I've been weaning down for a few weeks more to just like soften the the mental blow because in the next few weeks, there's going to be a period of time where my body is making no testosterone whatsoever. This is one of the things that happens uh, when you inject exogenous testosterone, your body stops making it. Almost immediately, really from the first shot, your body says, well, we have enough of this and it shuts down um, your balls essentially, right? Your balls stop working. And they can kick back on, assuming you don't leave the system off for that long, but mine have been off for three months, and so as I you know, stop injecting exogenous testosterone into my body, I'm going to have a window of time where my body does not make testosterone at all before my system kicks back on and begins producing it again. And that window, depending on the person, it can be very, very rough because you are you're experiencing something that's in deep, direct contrast to how you felt for the last three months. The last three months, I felt amazing. The recoveries from my workouts have been 24 hours. You know, I've done a ton of heavy lifting in the backyard, moving things around, building things, construction projects around the house, or even things like mowing the grass or just, you know, daily, like more physical chores. And I never get sore. If I feel my back you know, bother me a little bit, the next morning it's all gone. It's like your ability to heal up is just, you're like a superhuman, it's crazy. And that's gonna go away. You know, I'm gonna be sore for three days now after a workout, like a normal person. And, um, you know, my energy will certainly go down. I'm gonna experience a lot of fatigue. I'm not gonna have, um, I'm, not, I'm not gonna wake up in a hyper-motivated state necessarily. And that contrast between how you felt on cycle and how you feel when your testosterone is at fucking zero, you know, that's a pretty sharp contrast. And some people have a really hard time with it. So I'm excited for the challenge. I'm excited for the learning experience, but I am not anticipating that I'm going to be very productive for the next month or so. So right now, I've got about four or five days left until my last injection uh, begins to to wean down a little bit, and then I'll have a week or two of, you know, declining testosterone levels until I basically bottom out, and then I've got a few weeks of being bottomed out at zero testosterone, um, and then I'll take some drugs, some PCT, post-cycle therapy drugs, that ultimately reboot your system and get you back to a normal level. So then the climb back to natural testosterone levels, uh, that will begin. So I thought this would be a good point in the steroid cycle to give you um, to give you my thoughts on it. Because as of now, I am still technically on a steroid cycle, though all of my injections are done. I think I got about five days left until the sharp decline begins. Um, and, you know, maybe describing what it's like to be on a steroid cycle would be difficult not being on it. So like once my testosterone dips, maybe I'll have a hard time remembering or at the very least articulating what it's like to be on cycle. So I thought maybe I could do a better job of that while still technically on cycle. So, uh, yeah, man, it's been a very fun experiment. Assuming I make it through the, the PCT, the post-cycle therapy, and get my levels back to normal and balance myself out after. Assuming that's not utter misery for more than a month or so, um, this was fucking fun. Very fun, very worth it, for sure. Big picture, I am glad that I did it as of right now, but let's talk in a couple weeks and I'll let you know if that's, uh, that's still, still the case.
So now let's pivot hard to something a bit more philosophical. We're gonna do precision of language. And I'm not going to lay out everything that I've ever thought in this topic, because I think that could be a podcast in itself. But once again, it's this feeling of inadequacy where I I worry that, uh, that I'm gonna miss some things. So I guess I'm just opening up by saying, hey, I'm gonna fucking miss some things and we're not gonna spend hours and hours on this topic. But I wanna give you some thoughts on this, because it's something I've thought pretty deeply about over the last few months. So the phrase or the concept that got me interested in this was that, was one that, that, you know, we think in words. Now, some people can think in pictures and some people can think a little bit more emotionally with these different types of context or imagery in their head. But if they're not articulated by words and you're really thinking in, let's say, pictures or imagery, that's a little bit closer to like an autism spectrum. That's not how most people think. A vast majority of people think in words. And so I began, I began thinking about how fascinating is it that if I were to take a person who's thinking about a problem in their life and I begin removing words from their vocabulary, you are directly limiting their ability to think critically, deeply, and accurately about their problem. Now, what happens if we do the opposite? What happens if we increase someone's vocabulary and cognitive ability to, to process words, sentences, you know, we are increasing their capacity for thought. And so if you believe that thought and language are married together in this way, you can see how a limited vocabulary or imprecise, imperfect, inarticulate language would be synonymous with imprecise, inarticulate, imperfect thought. And that to me is very interesting. It's very interesting to think that one of the ways to improve your thinking, your cognitive function, would be to merely increase your vocabulary or at least improve uh, your relationship to language in itself. And that would be something along the lines of like forming better sentences. You could swap that out and say that's how you form better thoughts. Uh, or even telling better stories, constructing constructing better word patterns, right? That that would be synonymous with, um, with, with more complete thinking, right? There's a lot of analogies that you could draw here, and this is where I sort of, I become inarticulate in my language, where I'm not entirely sure how to say it. But the concept itself would be uh, that your words are directly related to your thoughts. So precise language is precise thinking. Uh, precise words are precise thoughts. Now, I remember first encountering my, my, gripe or pet peeve with imprecise language in the drum industry as a drum teacher because I would have people that would say things like um, roll down the toms that's a big one roll down the toms that is not a precise definition of anything that is happening it's a very vague statement of what is happening and I would as a drum teacher I would have to bring people into uh, a higher state of precision with their language and with their thinking. So when you say roll down the toms, do you mean a single stroke roll? Do you mean a double stroke roll? What subdivision are you referring to? What tempo are we playing this at? Which note goes precisely on which drum at which time, at what time, in which order, right? So it's sort of increasing people's precision of their language, of their understanding, is synonymous with, with increasing the precision of their drumming and their musical expression, right? And, you know, th there are other times when, when, let me give you an example, when, when people talk this way in drum world, early or young drummers, and they have the, these, this vague language that they use to describe certain things that they want to do or they want to play, 
I hear that as like, let's say that, that you and I are talking about cell phones. We've got my cell phone here. And you said, you know, we, we wanted to open this up and, and work on the cell phone. We wanted to like tweak it and maybe put a different chip or something in it. And uh, here, I'll imprecise my languages, huh? And we open this up and we start going, yeah, you know, you got a transistor and a little capacitor and then the, you know, wires connecting and, you know. No, none of that counts. None of that counts. We are not, we're not, we're not even engaged with the actual problem, right? We're not getting anything done here because we're speaking far too imprecisely about what it is that we want to do. Another excellent example would be cars. You know, to me and you and to 90 plus percent of the people watching, cars are cars. That's how we talk about them. That's how precise we get. We say car or we say truck or we say motorcycle. But go to a mechanic and that's not how they that's not how they perceptualize any of this at all. To them, this is an extremely complex machine. Their thinking, their language and the lens that they look through when they see a car is very, very, very detailed. As a matter of fact, we pay them to be the precise thinker when it comes to our cars. And so in many ways, we leave our understanding of things unconscious in this way because it makes life easy. Like, who wants to describe your car as the insanely complex piece of machinery that it is? We like to summarize and generalize our understanding of objects by calling them the simplest thing possible. That's a car. Okay, it's well, it's a lot more than just a car, but again, it's, it's because our, our, our thinking is not very precise, so our language is not very precise. But when the car breaks down, all of a sudden you have to go pay the guy whose job it is to be a precise thinker when it comes to uh, this particular machine. And this applies to all, all industries, anything you can think of, even things that you touch and use every single day. You know, you, you're thinking about it in a very imprecise way because it simplifies the world around you. And so my argument would be, that in order to understand the world around you, in order to increase your awareness of anything, it is a matter of articulating your language, which is synonymous with articulating your thought, in order to bring these things out of the murky, foggy territory that they all seem to reside in and bringing them into uh, to a place where we can actually see everything that happens. And to me, this is also one of the benefits of talk therapy, for example. Think about what you're doing in talk therapy when you go to see a therapist. You're using your words to express your thoughts, and if you solved a problem via therapy, or even just in speaking with a friend through conversation, what you're doing is you're honing in on specific words, you're constructing your language in order to increase the precision, increase your understanding of a certain problem, and there is where you find answers. That's how you find solutions, by increasing the precision of your thinking, which again, is the same thing as saying you increase the precision of your words. You know, there's certain issues that Kelly and I have had over the years that we've spent a tremendous amount of time talking about. On average, her and I probably talk between one and two hours a day about anything, but we're a normal couple by, by uh, you know, a lot of standards, and we've definitely had many fights, many fights that repeat, too, things you argue about over and over. And of those issues, the ones that we have solved, we have solved through language. And we've joked before, like you take a very specific issue, that we fought about, and each time you circle back to that argument and you fight about it, your words become more, more precise. 
you pick up the argument where you last left off. So for example, um, I'm gonna make up an argument here. So let's just say that we were arguing about who does the dishes and we find out in one of those, those arguments or those conversations that, well, the reason she doesn't do the dishes is because she's tired when she comes home from work. Okay, well now when we have this talk again, we have articulated our our thoughts and our language to already have, have an understanding of that. So now that we've discussed it, we can pick up the conversation there, right? Well, now I know that she's tired at, at work or she's tired from work. Um, and so we pick up the conversation a little bit further in that we were last time. And ideally, you keep having this conversation and you build these thoughts and points with your language to where you're, you're becoming more precise about exactly what the problem is. Where the first time you have this argument, you're saying, why didn't you do the fucking dishes? But the 10th time you have this argument, all of a sudden now we're talking about, um, you know, strategies where like, where I could actually make dinner for her because then when she gets home, she's not tired uh, or rather she is tired, but dinner's already waiting for her. So it's one less thing that she has to do. And then she has the extra energy to actually do the dishes from the night before. I'm making all of this shit up, but you kind of get where I'm going here. So the precision of language, the precision of thought is what you use to solve problems. And if you look at any problem that you've solved, a problem, let's just say that you had to revisit numerous times, you ultimately what you're doing is you're narrowing the focus of your language, the focus of your thoughts until you zero in on the problem. The most precise language, the most precise thinking is how you get to the core truth of a problem, it's how you solve things. And so I've tried to think of examples where this does not apply, where being imprecise in, imprecise in your thinking, imprecise in your language and your words, inarticulate um, in your thoughts and language, you know, does that ever bring you closer to any higher good whatsoever, right? Is that is that any, is there any argument that that is how you should operate in the world, address problems? I genuinely don't think so. And if, if you have an example, I would love to hear it. And the last little thought I have on this concept of precision of language uh, and again, precision of thought would be that complex journeys can lead to simple truths. And so it is not to say that you need to open up, expand and elaborate on every single thought that you have to to just add a pile of word vomit on top of anything. I'm not necessarily saying that, that that's what I think is, is best to do, though I'm notorious for doing that. I'm a very long-winded, uh, deep thinker, and that works to my detriment sometimes. But I think the concept here is that if there is a certain truth to a problem in your life or just a thing that you're trying to solve and better understand, I do think that sometimes... The word vomit, the, the elaborate speech, the intricate thinking that you might have to go through to get to that truth, I think that can all be very complex. I think it can take a lot of fucking words to hone in on something that is ultimately very simple. So it's sort of like the journey might be complex, but the destination is actually very simple. So... Let's just say, uh, <laughs> let, let's, let's in this stay in the context of this podcast, you know, I said a lot of words about motorcycles, a whole lot of words, but ultimately there was one simple truth to what I was saying, and that is that you can purchase a very powerful feeling. You can purchase a very powerful ex um, experience that is riding a really fast motorcycle. Took me a lot of words to get there. But ultimately, the complex linguistic journey that I took you on leads to something very simple. 
I don't think you get to skip over the steps. So like in talk therapy, I don't think you get to not have those elaborate, long-winded, painfully brutal conversations and still get the answer. I don't think you can simply go talk to a therapist and they go, well, hey, at the end of the day, we don't need to get in the weeds on any of this stuff. You should just know that you deserve to be happy. No, that doesn't count. That doesn't fucking work. You have to, you have to go through this, this complex sea of words to arrive at that simple truth. And of course, along that journey, that linguistic journey of discussion and conversation, you will acquire uh, many different, what's the word? Many different arguments or, or, or points or things that can support that final conclusion, which again, may be very simple, but it's just that you have to navigate through this linguistic maze before you arrive at that simple truth that, you know, you deserve to be happy, right? That's one, one example. Yes, that's true. But if you really want that to land, if you want it to stick, if you want it to become your own personal truth and not just an objective truth that you can read on an Instagram meme, you know, you have to navigate through some linguistic waters. And um, yeah, man, precision of speech, it's a, it's a fucking powerful one. Now, I, what I'd like to do with this topic is really is really sort of parse it out into a few different domains because I feel a, a touch scrambled when I try to explain this. I don't have all of, uh, all of my thoughts about this particularly laid out. Again, they're relatively imprecise in some ways. So um, I'd like to really tighten up this argument a lot better, but these are just some of my thoughts about the concept of being ultra precise with your language, why I think it is incredibly important, and why I think it is at, at the core of... Um, Two things, solving problems, just just objectively trying to make your life better by solving problems, and two, discovering truth, uh, discovering whether it's a personal truth or understanding what you believe to be an objective truth, um, you know, being precise with your language and really dialing in your thinking. Those two things are just absolutely synonymous in my experience, and this has been a very powerful thought experiment for me that, uh, that I'm still running, to be honest with you. And now we're going to close out with a dose of Jesus. Oh, man, this is an interesting one. So for those who haven't watched some of the earlier episodes of this podcast, or if you just don't know me that well, um, let me clarify by first saying I am, I am not a Christian at all. Uh, I'm, not a, I'm not an enemy of Christianity necessarily, though I'll, I'll be the first one to tell you that it's uh, not all good in my opinion. I can, I can certainly give you an inventory of the, the damage that that belief system caused me, but I, I don't consider myself to be a, an enemy of Christianity or even religious thinking necessarily. Though I've got my gripes, and maybe we'll stumble across a couple of them here. Um, so this is ultimately in the wheelhouse of what I would describe as Jordan Peterson's metaphorical substrate theory. So the idea would be that there are truths buried in religious thinking that are somewhat profound, somewhat universal. They've sort of always been here. And you know, I have definitely abandoned the idea that the reason the Bible has survived several thousand years is, you know, merely because we're dumb. You know, I I don't think it's that simple. Uh, I think that is a that's a gross oversimplification of what um, what the Bible specifically is. Um, but the idea here would be this is the the overarching idea of, of how I see religion primarily is that it is. It's a metaphorical substrate that contains certain truths, and they seem to be some of the first places that we ever discovered these truths. And that's a that's a powerful idea. That let's just say that there is a a higher good, right? 
Well, when did we first conceptualize that there was a higher good? And how did humanity begin to begin to construct an idea of what that good is and how we can possibly access it? You have to look at religious thinking in order to, to get some sort of explanation for for how humanity first encountered these ideals. So what I have for you here is ultimately a metaphor for what Jesus is. And I'm curious if you're a Christian listening to this, I'm curious how this this particular metaphor strikes you. I'm also curious about how you look at at the metaphorical substrate of religion itself, right? Because clearly there are metaphors in the Bible. It's fucking full of them. But the more of a fundamentalist Christian you are, the more that you reject the metaphorical lens of, of reading or looking at the Bible. You know, if I were to tell you that that the whole thing is a metaphor, a vast majority of Christians, uh, even young, not self-proclaimed like fundamentalist Christians, uh, might find that a little bit offensive, right? That not all of it can be a metaphor, just some of it can be a metaphor. Uh, and so I'm curious what what parameters you use to to parse out what is metaphorical and what is not, right? Obviously, when you get into Psalms and Proverbs, there's many, many metaphors there. Um, not a lot of people would argue that 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 every word in Psalms um, literally happened and is fundamentally true. But where you draw the line of what is metaphorical and what is not in the context of the Bible, that's some tricky territory for a lot of Christians. And so if you're a Christian, I'm very curious where you draw those lines. In my eyes, I've come to believe that that even if it is all entirely metaphorical and virtually none of it is fundamentally true, that it does not detract from the message at all. I really don't think it matters if any of that stuff actually happened because to contain truth, something does not have to be fundamentally true. Um, there's a whole lot of movies that contain truths, powerful messages, but it's all metaphorical. We're not saying that any of the, the things in these movies actually happened. If you've ever heard a fictitious story and were moved by it and you found something that you related to that was, that was true, there was truth in the story, well, it really doesn't matter if it was true or not. That's not the point. We're talking about a different type of truth. So let me tell you about a truth that I see in Christianity that is completely detached from the idea that the story you know, might not be fundamentally true. And this pertains directly to Jesus. So Jesus represented the ideal man. He was uh, born a human, right? Born a human, and he was tempted. He was explicitly tempted uh, by Satan. God gave Satan permission to tempt Jesus. So he lived with all of the, the temptations that you and I would live with. He lived with all of them, but at every crossroad, of which there were tens of thousands of them undoubtedly, every moral, ethical crossroad, he made the right decision every single time. Now, imagine that there's a version of you who did that? And that's really fucking hard to imagine because, let's be honest, you suck, I suck, we've always sucked, we're still gonna suck for a long time. We're not good at everything. We fuck up all the time. Every single day we, we make a certain decision, if not a hundred decisions, that can be brought into question. Was that the best thing to do? Well, really tough to say. You know, it's tough to say. It depends on your concept of morality sometimes, right? Like, it, it's, it's, it's muddy waters. But you can imagine a version of yourself that made all of the right decisions. This is a potential version of you. It doesn't exist, it never has existed, but you can still imagine that the ideal version of you exists. Now, that, that would be described as Christ-like by most Christians. That, that would be to, to 
behave and to operate and to live exactly as Christ lived. And you know that you're never going to do that, but that's not necessarily the point because the point of Christianity is merely that you try. Because if you invite Christ into your heart, you are coming into alignment with the ideal. You're saying that I will try my best to live as this man lived. And he was perfect. Now let's just say, thought experiment, you succeed. You actually succeed at doing this, which would be synonymous with like, becoming enlightened, let's just say. But let's just say that you you aim to be as Christ-like as possible and you somehow get it. You become this perfect potential version of yourself. Well, you don't you don't merge with Christ. You don't become Jesus Christ. You're still you, but it's a version of you that is at least your lifestyle would be synonymous with the lifestyle that Jesus lived. You are you are in direct alignment with the highest good, right? Now, let me level with you. There are a couple things, some 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 views that Christianity takes on that, that I, I don't totally disagree with. One of them would be that there's a higher good, that there is some version of a of a divine purity to the universe, that there is a good that we can aim at. To me, that seems to be relatively obvious, and nope, I don't have the science to back that up, but it sure seems like there is some sort of divine, beautiful, pure perfection out there in the ether. There's something like that. And if I want access to that thing, whatever that that perfect good might be, which Christians call God, but um, I'll call it God with you, sure. If I want access to that, I don't think it's disputable that I am not worthy of that naturally. I'm definitely not. I am not that. I'm not a pure, perfect good. Not at all. I'm not without sin, as Christians would describe it. I got plenty of shit wrong with me. Um, and and to, to claim that I would be anywhere near um, that this divine perfection that we're describing would be deeply egotistical and narcissistic. No, I'm not. Neither are you. We're all fucked. But if I said that I can imagine a version of myself where I make all the right decisions, where I where I orient my moral compass towards that greater good in every possible way that I can in order to gain access to the highest good possible because I know I'm not worthy. So I know I've got to try and orient myself and align myself uh, with this ideal potential version of me to access that greater good. Tell me how that's different than accepting Christ into your heart in order to access the kingdom of heaven. For me, these two ideals are not different whatsoever. Now, I know there is one problematic area here that Christians are going to say. They're going to say, well, the problem is here that you're conflating the idea that the perfect version of you is exactly the same as Jesus, that you and Jesus are interchangeable in this metaphor. My argument is that yes, they are, that you are actually Jesus, that aiming yourself at Christ or rather coming into alignment with Christ and inviting this entity to live inside your soul, metaphorically, that that is the same thing as adopting the belief that there is a perfect ideal version of you that you can be in alignment alignment with at all times, and that aiming at that, the perfect version of you, will grant you access to the highest universal good that there is. So the ticket to God, you say it's Jesus, and I say, well... The ticket is merely aligning yourself with the ideal. And that's what you do when you accept Christ into your heart and you aim to be Christ-like. You say, I want to be in alignment. I want to aim myself at the ideal man.
Me too. I just don't call him Jesus. I say, well, that's a potential version of me. Because again, if you succeeded in your endeavor to be as Christ-like as possible and you became just like Christ, you do not become Christ. You become the best version of you that could potentially exist. But you don't merge into Jesus. You're still you even if all of this works out perfect. So my question is, am I allowed to aim at that? Just the best version of me. Do I need Jesus as the example or can I be the example? Can the most Christ-like version of me be the thing that I'm aiming at? And does that grant me access to the highest good, which, you know, again, a Christian would say, no, it's Jesus only. I'm trying to tell you that I, I don't I don't buy that in particular, but I do buy the story. I do buy the story that in order to access the highest good, which you are innately not worthy of, you must aim at the ideal version of yourself. And I think Christians believe this same exact thing they just like to use different words. And that that element of fundamentalism is where I draw the line because you have to say that this guy actually died on the cross and he actually rose again three days later. And if for some reason we were to entertain the thought, like as Christians, if you were to entertain the thought that that did not fundamentally happen and it's merely a metaphor for how to access a greater good, Oh, that stings, that stings, because when you step too far out of that fundamentalist territory, all of a sudden you have a really hard time claiming that you're actually a Christian, uh, because what are you going to say, I'm a metaphorical Christian? Like, good luck, good luck taking that one to church. So if you're a Christian listening, I am particularly curious how this metaphor strikes you. Do you believe that when you break away from the fundamentalist viewpoint that Christ must have died on the cross and that the, the ticket to heaven, so to speak, the thing that grants you access to the greatest good, God, must be Jesus. If you break that and you you sum it up in a metaphor, so to speak, um, how is it that that it's that different? Is is it truly the name G <laughs> J E S U S? Is it the name? It's just the name that counts. Is it the fundamental belief that a that a man who lived as a human being was actually the son of God 3,000 years ago? Where is it that, that I lose you? If you say, I don't buy the metaphor, and it must be Jesus and only Jesus, and you can't call it the highest good, it must be God, where, where have I lost you in my metaphor? Because my argument would be that I'm going to end up in the exact same place as you because I have aimed myself at the ideal, I've conceded that I'm not worthy of the highest good, and that there is a there there is a type of philosophical mindset that I must align myself with um, that dictates my behavior on this planet, which would grant me some version of access to that higher good, um, you know, in my consciousness after I die. So we're getting a little muddy here, but uh, but I hope that this this analogy makes sense. I know that this is something that Christians don't like to think about very much. I think that well, I should say a majority of Christians don't like to think about very much because fundamentalism is is comfortable. To say that the Bible is objectively true, the story of Jesus is objectively true, um, man, that, that's a really simple version of, of reality. And the simple versions of reality are often very, very tempting. And my argument here is not that it's more complicated than that. My argument in some ways is that it's actually, it's actually more simple. Because when you hinge all of these beliefs on the idea that something must be fundamentally true, that a guy named Jesus in the Middle East must have died on the cross, that the words of this story must be accurate, to me, 
given that much of that is is truly unverifiable, at least from a scientific perspective, it brings in this this powerful fixture of faith. And to me, that's a far that's a far more difficult thing to wrestle with, right? I think removing the fundamentalism and simply trusting in the truth of the metaphorical substrate that I'm articulating here, I think that that, that has some version of a beautiful simplicity where you could see people living this metaphor, living this truth, um, attempting to access the highest good by aiming themselves and orienting themselves at the ideal version of themselves. You could find this throughout the world, throughout different cultures, throughout different religious perspectives. And it sort of gives credit to the idea that all of this is fucking connected, that (laughs) that what people are using religion for is not particularly like the opiate of the masses necessarily. No, it's different people trying to gain access to that highest good. They're trying to see how in the fuck I can orient my imperfect ass with perfection. How do I get there? How do I get there? Um, Jesus is definitely a solid ass story. That is a, it's a, it's a good story. It's a good story and it makes a lot of sense. But uh, I suppose my argument would be that the metaphor I'm pitching to you today is a, is a simpler way to arrive in the exact same place. And so you might not agree. That's okay. If you do disagree, I would love to hear your thoughts on it. Trust me, you won't hurt my feelings, and I'm certainly not here to hurt your feelings. But yeah, so those are some of my thoughts on motorcycles, steroids, Jesus, and precision of language. Thank you guys so much for tuning into this episode of All In With Adam. It's been episode 16. I really appreciate it, guys. Thanks for the time. I will see you next week. I'm hoping I'm going to be here with Brother Devin Sumner, a really, really good friend of mine. So uh, him and I are going to go hard. He's a, he's a deep thinker and a fun guy to talk to. So that'll be a really cool episode. Thank you, guys. I really appreciate it. Adam here, and I will catch you in the next one. Later.